Well, hello, you. Welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm Nurse Mo, and I am so happy that you are here with me today for episode 201, and we're diving into meningitis today. Before we do that, if you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know I like to take a quick minute at the beginning to give a shout out to my SAN fam. That is the SAN family, the Straight A Nursing family. So this one goes out to Beatrice. And Beatrice says, thank you. Unbeknownst to you, listening to you during my journey was like having a good friend, a mentor who I could count on any time even when I was studying in the middle of the night. While everyone else was sleeping, you were giving me company and expanding my knowledge. I'm not an auditory learner, but I became one when I started listening to you. I'll always treasure your study guides as well. Encore. (laughs) Beatrice, thank you so much for that lovely, lovely message. Oftentimes when I'm sitting here in my little studio recording these episodes... I'm talking into a microphone and I constantly remind myself that I'm not just talking into a microphone. I'm talking to students and nurses around the world. And that reminder when you write in to me just means everything to me. So thank you so very much. Okay, are you ready to talk about meningitis? So meningitis is a disease condition that you are typically covering during a pediatric course because it does typically affect pediatrics and young adults. The highest disease rates are going to be for children younger than 12 months of age. And then there's another big group beyond that, which is teens and young adults age 16 to 23. And then if you wanted to take it even a step further, it would be those living in crowded conditions or really tight quarters like a college dormitory. So even though you're going to probably learn about meningitis in pediatrics, it can occur at any age. Now, the pathophysiology of meningitis can vary a little bit based on the type. There's different types of meningitis, and we'll talk about those in a bit. But the very short version is that meningitis is inflammation of the meninges. And these are those outer layers surrounding the brain and the spinal cord. Now, the meninges themselves are composed of three distinct layers. There's the pia mater, which is that innermost layer the arachnoid, which is that web-like structure where the CSF is, and the dura mater, which is that tough, more outer layer. These inflamed meninges can be quite painful, and it can lead to other neurological symptoms, which we'll discuss a little bit further on. First, I want to talk a little bit about what causes meningitis. So usually, meningitis is a result of bacterial or viral infection, but it can also be due to fungal and protozoan infections as well. Of these, bacterial meningitis is the most severe, and then viral is the most common. Now, in most cases, meningitis is going to occur secondary to another infection, such as pneumonia or sinusitis. It can also occur due to infections secondary to invasive procedures, things like a lumbar puncture, trauma like a skull fracture, or an infection of a ventricular shunt. 
the pathogen essentially is entering the system and then is carried throughout that area of the brain and the spinal cord tissues by the CSF. So let's talk now very briefly about the key different types of meningitis. So I mentioned before that viral meningitis is the most common. And the good thing about that is that it's also less severe than that bacterial form. So even though it's more common, it's not as likely to be severely detrimental to the patient. It is most often caused by enteroviruses, but it can also be related to chickenpox, measles, mumps, rubella, and bites from insects like mosquitoes. So West Nile virus can be a culprit. It can be spread person to person through fecal contamination. So this is why it's really important as part of your patient teaching, always teaching to thoroughly wash hands after going to the bathroom or changing a baby's diaper. Vaccination against measles, mumps, chickenpox, rubella can also help prevent disease. And in most cases, viral meningitis is going to resolve on its own. Now, bacterial meningitis, on the other hand, does not resolve on its own. This is the most severe form of meningitis. If not treated promptly, bacterial meningitis can lead to hearing loss, brain damage, and yes, death. The most likely pathogens are Haemophilus influenza type B, Neisseria meningitidis, and Streptococcus pneumoniae. Now, it can be spread through direct contact, such as if a person who has it coughs or sneezes, gets those droplets on someone else, or from kissing an infected individual. Some forms of bacterial meningitis can even be spread through contaminated food that contains the Listeria bacterium. Examples that I saw of these were hot dogs, sandwich meats, and soft cheeses. In addition to vaccination, a key prevention intervention you will hear repeated over and over again is to teach college students who live in dorms not to share utensils with others or personal items. Another type of meningitis, though not very common, is fungal meningitis, and this occurs when a fungus enters the bloodstream and finds its way to the meninges. Individuals with a weakened immune system are most at risk, and this is most often caused by inhaling fungal spores from bird and bat droppings or contaminated soil. Fungal meningitis requires extensive courses of antifungal medication, usually administered in the inpatient setting via an IV infusion. Another form of meningitis, and this one is one of those that just makes you paranoid, is amoebic meningitis. So amoebic meningitis is very rare, and it is usually fatal. It's caused by the amoeba Negleria Fowlery, I hope I said that right. And this amoeba enters the body through the nose, and the condition progresses very rapidly over 1 to 12 days. So this amoeba lives worldwide in warm, freshwater sources, such as rivers, hot springs, and lakes. It also lives in water heaters, inadequately treated swimming pools, industrial water runoff, and soil. So 
just be very careful where you go swimming. This form of meningitis, however, is not transmissible person to person, so at least there's that. And then there's parasitic meningitis, which is less common than viral or bacterial meningitis. And you may also hear this called eosinophilic meningitis. And it can be caused through various different parasites that can be in contaminated produce, undercooked snails, undercooked slugs. So stay away from those. It could be ingested through eggs found in soil that is contaminated with raccoon feces. So the eggs get into the soil that's contaminated and that's where the parasite lives. And it can also be from ingesting undercooked poultry or undercooked freshwater fish and eels. So it's definitely not transmissible person to person either. And basically you avoid this one by avoid eating high-risk foods, washing hands, washing utensils after preparing raw slugs and raw poultry. You would avoid contact with raccoons and try not to attract any raccoons to your home. So keeping trash containers covered, keeping sandboxes covered, things like that. And then there is a non-infectious meningitis, which is another form of non-transmissible meningitis that usually occurs in correlation with conditions related to inflammation, like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. It can also occur in cases of brain surgery, head injury, cancer, and with the use of NSAIDs and certain antibiotics. Treatment is focused on getting to the underlying cause and controlling symptoms. So now that you've got a bit of an overview on meningitis, let's go through the two most common ones, bacterial and viral, using the straight-A nursing latte method. If you're not familiar with the latte method, this is a streamlined way to look at disease conditions. So you can really focus in on that must-know information that you need so that you can study more effectively. If you want to get a template that follows along with this method, I've got a link in the show notes for you to grab that. So the first letter in latte is L. How does the patient look? So the L component of the latte method looks at basically the patient's signs and symptoms and what you essentially notice about them. Rapid diagnosis of meningitis is really essential because it can be fatal if left untreated. And of course, we all know that nurses don't diagnose medical conditions, but many times it's you noticing and picking up on cues and alerting the right person that can make such a huge difference for patients. So the classic signs of meningitis are nuchal rigidity, which is that very, very stiff neck, severe headache, photophobia, and nausea and vomiting. So in infants, of course, they can't tell you all of these things that they're experiencing. So a lot of times in infants, it's going to be the increased ICP. So common signs of increased ICP in children that you'll see over and over again, especially on exams, is a shrill, high-pitched cry, vomiting, and a full or tight fontanelle. And then some other very common signs include chills and a fever that can be as high as 104 degrees Fahrenheit, altered mental status, so this could be difficulty waking, confusion, difficulty concentrating, maybe being irritable or having acute delirium. Patient could have seizures. This occurs in about one-third of the cases. Coma can occur in very severe cases. 
A skin rash is a component of meningococcal meningitis, which is a form of bacterial meningitis, and decreased appetite and decreased thirst. So the next letter in the latte method is A, and that stands for assess. How do you assess a patient who has meningitis? So as you'll always hear, get that full set of vital signs, right? So getting that full set of vital signs, the key one here is temperature. Remember, the temperature with meningitis can be quite high. Up to 104 degrees Fahrenheit is definitely not uncommon. You also want to conduct a thorough pain assessment. The patient is likely to complain of a headache that is unlike any other headache they've ever had, and this headache may progressively worsen. Additionally, when they're exposed to light, this could make the pain worse. This is that photophobia. You'll also be conducting a neuroassessment. The patient may be confused, have decreased level of consciousness with or without elevated ICP. In severe cases, the patient may again be comatose or have seizures. Signs of elevated ICP include pupillary changes, extraocular movements, and decreased level of consciousness. You will be monitoring their eyes and O's. Now the patient could be dehydrated. This is due to fever in many cases, can also be due to decreased thirst, or they've had altered mental status and just haven't been drinking. Conversely, the patient could also have fluid volume overload. So that would be another scenario. And that typically is going to be occurring in cases of bacterial meningitis because it can lead to increased amounts of ADH to be released, which is that SIADH syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone. You will be conducting a skin assessment because a sign of that meningococcal meningitis is a rash described as a petechial or purpuric rash. The most common location for this rash is the hands and feet, but it can progress to cover an entire arm or both arms or entire legs as the disease progresses. You'll be assessing the patient, asking about recent infections, recent invasive procedures, or traumas, particularly any that involve the head or the spine. And then we've got Brudzinski's and Koenig's signs. So for the Brudzinski's sign, you'll have the patient lie flat and then place your hands behind their neck and bend it forward. If the patient also flexes their hips and knees, this is considered positive Brudzinski sign, that's hard to say, and could be indicative of meningitis. And then the Koenig sign is assessed for in this way. While the patient is supine, you flex the leg at the hip and knee and then straighten it. So flex the leg at the hip and knee and then straighten it. And if there's pain or resistance with this movement, this is considered a positive Koenig sign and is indicative of meningitis. Now, note that this may not be common, common practice. It's definitely probably in your textbooks, may or may not show up on exams. However, it's important to know that they're not considered definitive diagnostic tools. Studies have found both of these assessments have a low sensitivity but a high specificity. So what this means is that a positive sign, yes, that's a good indicator of disease, 
but a negative sign does not necessarily mean they don't have the disease. So that's considered low sensitivity with high specificity. I can say with certainty today that becoming a nurse was one of the smartest decisions I ever made. It's allowed me to make a difference in people's lives, both patients and students, and given me a career that fulfills me in so many ways. But feeling certain wasn't always the case. I remember getting ready to graduate from nursing school and feeling a lack of confidence about bridging that gap from student to new nurse. Today, there's the Nurse Residency Program with HCA Healthcare. It's designed to help newly graduating nursing students succeed. You'll build your confidence with hands-on clinical experience while developing your critical thinking skills. You'll be supported by a community of experienced nurses and fellow nurse residents and build a foundation for your career at any of HCA Healthcare's 184 hospitals across 19 states. And becoming a nurse resident with HCA Healthcare comes with other great benefits like tuition reimbursement, student loan assistance, clear career pathways to help you achieve your professional goals, and access to company-wide clinical education programs. Now, I know many of you graduating now feel uncertain about the support you'll receive as a new grad, and if I could give you one piece of advice, I'd say definitely apply to the nurse residency program at HCA Healthcare. They accept applications from nursing students who are preparing to graduate within the next six months or graduate nursing students who have six months or less of experience when they apply. Learn more today at careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. Again, that's careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. HCA Healthcare, an equal opportunity employer. Okay, so let's move on to the first T in the latte method, which is test. What tests will be conducted? So the key diagnostic test for meningitis that will be ordered for your patient is a lumbar puncture. This test yields two very important diagnostic criteria. One is the CSF pressure measurement, which will be elevated if meningitis is present. And the other is evaluation of the fluid and identification of specific pathogens. So in viral meningitis, the CSF that is collected will be clear with elevated white blood cells and elevated protein. That CSF pressure will also be elevated as well. And then in bacterial meningitis, CSF will be cloudy with elevated white blood cells, elevated protein, and decreased glucose. Note that a normal range for CSF glucose is 50 to 80 milligrams per 100 mil, though this can vary, of course, Things always vary based on which laboratory is conducting your testing. So again, the differences here, viral meningitis, CSF will be clear with elevated white blood cells, elevated protein. In bacterial meningitis, CSF will be cloudy with elevated white blood cells, elevated protein, and decreased glucose. And of course, the CSF pressure measurement will be elevated as well. A CT scan and MRI could be ordered to rule out other causes for neurological symptoms and can identify complications such as hemorrhage, abscesses, or swelling. Sputum, 
nasopharyngeal swabs, and or blood may also be collected to assist in identifying the source of infection and help in prescribing the correct medications. So let's talk now about the second T in the latte method, and that is for treatments, what treatments are provided for someone who has meningitis. So looking at medications, first of all, analgesics for headache can include acetaminophen and ibuprofen most commonly. Of course, opioids can be used for severe headache. The hesitancy with using opioids is that it can mask neurological deterioration, so you'd be very cautious with using those. If you can get headache to any kind of a comfort-ish level for the patient using just acetaminophen and ibuprofen, that may be more appropriate for that patient. Antipyretics for that fever would be acetaminophen, ibuprofen. Those are the most commonly used ones. We tend to avoid aspirin use in children because of the risk of RISE syndrome. And then corticosteroids would be used to reduce inflammation. A great example of this is dexamethasone. Corticosteroids will cause the patient to have an increase in their serum glucose, so sometimes they will need insulin in some cases. Anti-seizure medication could be used if the patient has had a seizure or is high risk for seizures, such as with elevated ICP. Phenytoin is a common anti-seizure medication used in meningitis. An osmotic diuretic like mannitol may be given to decrease cerebral edema and reduce intracranial pressure, ICP. Note that mannitol can cause fluid losses. It is a diuretic, is an osmotic diuretic. So you could have some significant fluid losses and electrolyte imbalances. You also want to maintain fluid balance, and this could be done because, again, the patient could be overhydrated or underhydrated, so they could get fluids, they could get diuretics, they could have fluid restriction, they could even be getting hypertonic saline as needed. You will also be replacing electrolytes as needed, and note that levels can be depleted, you know, patient may be vomiting a lot, they could be depleted due to diuretic use, so you're definitely monitoring electrolytes. Antibiotics will be given for bacterial meningitis. That antibiotic therapy is crucial and will begin with a broad-spectrum antibiotic before those culture results come back. Remember, anytime you've got a patient with an infection, it's really important to get the specimen before you start the antibiotic. So what we'll do is we'll get the specimen as quickly as possible and then immediately hang that broad-spectrum antibiotic. That's usually how it plays out. So the initial IV antibiotics used in bacteria bacterial meningitis, typically you'll see vancomycin in coordination with either ceftriaxone or cefotaxime. I probably didn't say that right, but ceftriaxone or cefotaxime in combination with vancomycin. And then once the pathogen is identified, the antibiotic therapy is then tailored and very focused and specific to that pathogen. Some general nursing interventions for a patient with meningitis include 
standard precautions for all patients with meningitis with the addition of droplet precautions for your patient who has that bacterial meningitis. And typically, the droplet precautions are in place for 24 hours after an effective therapy has been initiated. So if you're giving an antibiotic and it's not doing anything, then that would not be considered effective therapy. It has to be an effective therapy given for 24 hours. You also want to promote what I call a neuro-friendly environment. So this is the lights dimmed or off, the shades drawn, a quiet room, minimize stimulation, close the door, speak in whispers or quiet voices. It's a neuro-friendly environment. Along those same lines, you want to avoid increased ICP. So maintain that neurofriendly environment. Also, maintain the patient on bed rest with the head of bed at 30 degrees. You want to avoid tight or restrictive clothing, especially around the midsection. Avoid severe flexion at the hips. Another great simple intervention is keep the head midline with a neutral neck position that promotes CSF drainage. And instruct the patient to avoid coughing and sneezing if at all possible, if they have a cough for whatever other reason, you may want to get a cough suppressant for them. And instruct the patient to avoid straining with bowel movements. They may need a stool softener to help avoid that. So those are some key ways to avoid increased ICP. You could also provide cooling measures as ordered. So in the facility where I work, cooling blankets are MD ordered. But a nursing intervention could be cool cloths and ice packs for patient comfort. And then E in the latte method is for educate. How do you educate the patient and the family? A key component of meningitis is health promotion. Prevention is always going to be the very best thing. So educating patients, educating families on meningococcal vaccines is very, very important especially for those that are going away to college and living in those close quarters. You also want to instruct those young adults to avoid sharing personal items. It seems like young adults, teens, they share everything. So teach them, don't share personal items, don't share utensils, don't share toothbrushes. I can't believe you'd have to tell someone not to share their toothbrush, but I've seen it happen. So instruct them specifically to not do that. You want to teach the patient and family how to maintain that calm, neuro-friendly environment. Again, low lights, low noise, low stimulation. In cases of bacterial meningitis, teach the patient, the family, to let those who have been in close contact know about the diagnosis because they're probably going to be given prophylactic antibiotics. Teach the importance of finishing all antibiotics that may be prescribed to avoid antibiotic resistance. So this would be if the patient goes home on any long-term antibiotics or any prophylactic antibiotics for others in the family. After the acute phase has passed, you want to teach the patient that they're still going to need a lot of rest and good nutrition before getting back up to par, back to resuming their regular activities. So kind of let them know what to expect with that. You can also teach about the importance of a healthy diet for keeping the immune system healthy, you know, fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, whole grains, lean proteins, and good hydration. 
You also want to teach the patient that muscle rigidity that they have with meningitis could linger. Passive range of motion, warm baths, often very helpful in relieving this tension. So that is your latte method for meningitis. So I hope if you've never used the latte method before, you see how it really just zones in on that must-know information. So I'm going to do a little bit of pod quizzing with you on this one. If you're new to pod quizzing, you're going to love this. It's a great way to review things and test your recall. I actually have an entire podcast dedicated mainly to pod quizzing, though there's a few other auditory learning components with that, and it is called Study Sesh. So if you like this idea of using auditory quizzing, then I want you to check the show notes for that link. So let me get up to the top of my notes and we'll ask a few questions. I'm going to pause after each one, give you time to answer, and then tell you the answer. What are the three layers of the meninges? So those are the innermost layer, the pia mater, the middle layer, the arachnoid, and that tough outer layer, the dura mater. Very, very good. What is the highest disease rate for meningitis amongst what age child? Children younger than 12 months. And then the second highest would be, those are Teens and young adults at what age? 16 to 23. Which type of meningitis is the most common? Viral meningitis, very good. And which type is the most severe, not counting that parasitic meningitis, because that's not very common? Bacterial meningitis, very, very good. Is there a vaccine against viral meningitis? Not specifically. Vaccination against contributing factors like measles, mumps, chicken pox, and all of that can help prevent disease, but there's not a vaccination specific to viral meningitis. What kind of meningitis has a specific vaccine? That is the bacterial meningitis. What are the classic signs of increased ICP in an infant? That would be a shrill, high-pitched cry, vomiting, and a full or bulging or tight fontanelle. What about general elevated ICP signs? Those were pupillary changes, extraocular movements, and decreased level of consciousness. What type of meningitis specifically involves a rash? Meningococcal meningitis. If I have my patient 
supine and I flex the leg at the hip and knee and then straighten it and there's pain or resistance with this movement, what is that called? That would be called a positive Koenig's sign. And then what was the other sign? What was the name of it? That is Brudzinski's sign. And to do that, we're going to have the patient lie flat. We'll place our hands behind their neck and do what? Bend it forward. And if the test is positive, what is also going to happen? The patient will flex their hips and knees. So this would be a positive Brudzinski sign. What is the numero uno key diagnostic test for meningitis? A lumbar puncture. And let's talk about the two types, viral and meningitis. In viral meningitis, will the CSF be cloudy or clear? Clear. Will the white blood cell count be elevated or decreased? Elevated. And what about protein? Elevated as well. What about bacterial meningitis? The CSF, will it be cloudy or clear? Cloudy. What about white blood cells and protein? Elevated and glucose. Glucose will be decreased. And then let's talk a little bit about the medications. What class of medication is phenytoin that would be commonly used in meningitis? That is an anti-seizure medication. What about mannitol? That is an osmotic diuretic. What about ceftriaxone? That is a broad-spectrum antibiotic. Very, very good. And why do we want to maybe avoid aspirin in children? because of the risk for RISE syndrome. Very, very good. I hope you enjoyed the pod quizzing. If that spoke to you, if that jazzed you up, then check out the link in the episode notes. You will see a link to study sesh is there for you. So I look forward to seeing you all next week. If you have subscribed to the podcast, and please do because the episode will show up for you like magic very early on Thursday mornings. We're going to be diving into pharmacology, talking about one of the most commonly prescribed medications. It's in that top 100 list. So head back over here next week for that. And if you have a minute to rate and review the podcast, you might be the next person that I talk to on my shout out. So have a great week and I'll see you soon. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.